Well, good morning and welcome to Sojourn. If you are new with us, it is a privilege to have you worship together with us. Each week we, we will turn to the Scripture. This week we are in Genesis chapter 21, so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to stay there. Genesis chapter 21. And we know that this is not the time to disengage as the people of God. We are just standing all together with mouths open singing to the Lord. Now is the time that we we sit all together with Bibles open before the Lord to hear His voice. Uh, Genesis chapter 21 is where we'll be this morning. But we're going to take a break from Genesis in the month of June. We're going to cover some minor prophets, some maybe words that you've heard, but books you've probably never gone through. So we're going to go through uh, Obadiah, Joel, Habakkuk, and Malachi. In the the month of June, so that's where we're going. But we know that no no matter where we go in the Bible, which is God's Word to us, that that when you have the the open Word of of God's living Word with His people, this is a a potent reality, a a potent place to be. So that's why we go there every single week. So Genesis chapter 1 is where we are this morning. And then next week, and then the week after that, then we'll be in some minor prophets. Let's, Let's pray together as we turn to God's Word. Father, we we want to ask that you would show us how great and good you are through your word this morning. We want to ask that you would remind us again of your faithfulness, of your goodness, of how you love us. We want to pray that you would equip us, that we might go out and proclaim your name. That we would uh, stand and sing that we're children of God here, but that we would also go out and live out our identity as children of God outside of these walls as well. Father, I pray that you might call in some who don't know you, that they would believe for the first time because they've seen how good you are and how you've revealed yourself in the gospel. Help us to engage your word this morning, and may you be especially present with us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I had a pastor say one time, and I think that this was wise words, he asked the question, how do you know if you have a dysfunctional family? And then he said, you just you know, put your fingers right here, and if you have a pulse, like you, you have a dysfunctional family. And I think that he is exactly right. How do you know if you have a dysfunctional family? Like, are you living and breathing? You have a dysfunctional family. In some form or fashion, kids, look at mom and dad. You know they're dysfunctional sometimes, right? Parents, you know your kids are dysfunctional. That's very present in front of us. Look around. Start observing. Like, There's dysfunction around us, in all of us, and outside of us as well. We have a dysfunctional families. We're we're part of a a great lineage of dysfunctional families. It started in Genesis chapter 3. This family that God created, He made man, He made woman, He put them together. Things were really good. They weren't made to be dysfunctional. And actually they were functioning really well until sin entered into the world. And from then, we've followed in a long line of dysfunctional families. Starting with Adam and Eve, but now we've gone to, what well, we went to Cain and Abel, there was a dysfunction there as one brother kills the other, and we just kind of see it spiral down from there, all the way to Abraham, who has this crazy family now, where you remember that Abraham is married to Sarah, but then he went ahead and slept with Hagar and had a kid through her, and now he's trying to get, have Sarah have a child, and all this is going on. Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael are all part of the story now of this dysfunctional family. But... God is still at work. God doesn't say, like, you're dysfunctional, like, I can't use you. No, God's at work in the middle of dysfunction. He's in the work in the middle of all the complications to reveal Himself, to show Himself, to show Himself 
mighty. And so this is what we see this morning in, in Genesis chapter 121. And we, we see Isaac's birth. We're going to see uh, God work in the middle of this function. You see Isaac's birth and we're going to see Ishmael and his departure and even kind of banishment from Abraham and his family into the, the wilderness of Beersheba. And in the middle of all of that, God is at work. He's showing His faithfulness. He's showing His goodness. So that we would see Genesis chapter 1 and rejoice. Rejoice in God's faithfulness and rejoice in God's goodness. And so how can we rejoice in God's faithfulness and goodness when we, as we read through this, we're going to see Ishmael sent away. In all the kind of craziness of this family, Ishmael is sent away. He's banished out from Abraham and his family. So how can we rejoice in God's faithfulness in the midst of that? Well, we first have to see Isaac's birth. And much has led up to this birth. And you know, God called Abraham, chapter 12. He said, go to this place, I'm going, to show I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you offspring, I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations, those you bless are going to be blessed, those you who curse you are going to be cursed. And he did a lot, and then Abraham, what has he done? Twice he's given up his wife to foreign kings, he, he's failed God several different times, he's acted without faith, yet God has continued to reveal himself, given visions, all these things, and he said a couple different times very specifically, you will have a son through Sarah, and then finally, in chapter 21, we've gone a long time since then, Finally, we see this in chapter 21, verse 1 and 2, that the Lord visited Sarah as He had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as He had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time in which God had spoken to him. So chapter 12, it was promised to them. Chapter 17, it was reaffirmed to Abraham. Chapter 18, God shows up and kind of seems to address Sarah a little bit more directly that she was going to have a son again. And in chapter 21, fulfilled. Now you see these signs sometimes. I see them more in Missouri. So if you ever drive through Missouri, they always have like, promise as progress, you know, like... Curbside work done, you know. This is exactly what's going on. Like chapter 12, chapter 17, 18, 21, it's done. God promised it, now it is fulfilled in the birth of Isaac. It's finally arrived. And this birth is, is very much a supernatural birth. Look at how it's described. That the Lord visited. That the Lord did this thing. That Abraham had a son in his old age. In other words, he's past the, the childbearing years. And that this happened when God said it would happen. All these things are at the direction of the Lord. That all the, the tension that we've seen in the story, all the, the delays in Sarah's birth of Isaac, all the testing that Abraham has already gone through, all the growth he's had, all the failure he's had, all of that, God brings resolution in this son, Isaac. And what a display of God's faithfulness that He promised, that He worked, that He protected, that He preserved, that He fulfilled every part of His Word as He spoke in Genesis chapter 12. Guys, let's just remind ourselves again that God is faithful. That each day we wake up with a million things that are changing. That we are in this ever-changing world, including our own lives, our own bodies. Everything around us is changing and getting different, but not our God. He is faithful always. As the day is long, God is faithful. So much so that the psalmist, they, they use this as a constant theme, the faithfulness of God. They say, the psalmist say this, that all of His work is done in faithfulness. That His faithfulness, it stretches to the clouds. That it's a shield for the people of God, that it's that His faithfulness is to not just one generation, but to all generations, that His 
Faithfulness endures forever. It's a refrain in the Psalms we see over and over and over again. So according to the Scripture, even the Psalms alone, this characteristic about God is not something that we should just say, wow, that's nice, I'm glad that He's faithful. It is something that we should then respond to with rejoicing that God is faithful, that it's worthy of our praise, that it's deserving, this God is deserving of our trust, and it's cause for the people of God to rejoice because God is faithful. We need to let the faithfulness of God lead us into these things. Lead us into trusting God. Lead us into praising and rejoicing in God because this is who He is. Now faithfulness can be both a a good thing and a bad thing, I think, because we all probably know someone who is faithfully mean. Or faithfully, like, frowning. Faithfully late. Faithfully calm, faithfully, you can have, you can be faithful in a lot of things. And so what kind of God is our God that we might be able to rejoice in His faithfulness? Well, we've seen this all through Genesis, that God is this good God. Out of the overflow of His love and His glory and who He is, He has created a humanity and an earth and a universe that they might share in His goodness. He's been merciful to people who haven't deserved His mercy. He's poured out His grace upon humanity. He's holy, He's just, He's merciful. He's all of these things. And so when we have all of that that God is and He's faithful, then we know that we can rejoice in that because God is not changing in these things. They will never alter or change as life does. And so that's why God's faithfulness is such good news for the people of God. And we can rejoice in His faithfulness because He's not faithfully mean, because He's not faithfully unjust. He's faithfully holy. He's faithfully good. He's faithfully gracious. We can think about all that hinges on the faithfulness of God. Faithfulness of God. Our justification hinges on God being faithful. Our sanctification hinges on God being faithful. Our resurrection hinges on God being faithful. If He said He's going to raise us, how do we know He's going to? Well, we trust in His faithfulness. That our escape from temptation, 1 Corinthians says, is dependent upon God being faithful and providing a way of escape. That Jesus' return and the restoration of all things, all of those hinge on God's faithfulness. Will He do what He has promised to do? Well, we know that one day, Revelation 19 talks about this, that there is going to come one who's, who's clothed in a white robe, his, his mouth is like a sword that slays his enemies, and the one who's sitting on a horse is called what? Faithful and true. So we can hope in all of these things because God is faithful. This is who God is. Even, and maybe even especially if some of these promises seem impossible. Abraham and Sarah should never have had a son at this point in the story. She had been barren. She was past childbearing age. So was Abraham. And yet that didn't stop God from fulfilling His word that He promised in Genesis chapter 12. So the question that God asked Abraham and Sarah in chapter 18 is a question that we need to be reminded of as well. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Yeah, reaching some nations... That's hard. It seems like it would be impossible. Like you can't even go to certain places. If you go some places and you start speaking about Jesus, you're you're likely to meet a a quick death. But God said, right, that one from every tribe and tongue and nation is going to be worshiping me in the end. So we can go. It may seem impossible to walk away from your certain temptation that, that you struggle with, but yet what does God say? First Corinthians thirteen that He is faithful. He's faithful that He always provides a way of escape. What does it say about changing hearts? That is impossible for us to do, and yet God is faithful. 
that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, that all of these things, they are impossible apart from God's word and God's faithfulness to fulfill all of His promises. So is God's faithfulness making us rejoice? Are we rejoicing because of who God is? What He has done? This is what Sarah does. If you look in verse 6 and 7, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. So. Good use of the word Isaac. You see how it's turned. He's made laughter for me. Everyone who hears me will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? And yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Think of the the transformation that Sarah has come through. In chapter 16, verse 2, she said, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. And you can almost sense like a bitterness in her voice. In chapter 18, when God shows up at Abraham's tent and he says, where's Sarah? He says, she's in the tent. She's listening to God. God's directing something at her. He says, Sarah's going to have a son. And what does she do? She laughs. She laughs to herself saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And yet, now we see Sarah laughing again, Isaacing again, and her laughter is now changed. Instead of coming from a place of pain and doubt and bitterness and unbelief, it comes from a place of joy and trust in her God. So like Adam when he saw Eve, Sarah has the son and kind of responds with with poetry. She breaks out in poetry to express her joy. And once again, I can't identify. Never done that. But what does she do? She gives credit and glory to God for this birth. God gives her a son and she gets joy from it. So what has happened between the Sarah of chapter 16 and Sarah of chapter 18 to the Sarah now? And we don't know all the ins and outs or the timeline of this, but at some point we know that Sarah believed. Hebrews 11.11 says this, that by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past age. Since she considered Him faithful who had promised. She considered Him faithful. So she responds with joy in God fulfilling His promise. Now Abraham's response, we don't get to see joy and poetry break out from him. It's not recorded. It might have happened. But his response is still meaningful. If you look in verse 3. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him with whom Sarah born him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. And everyone who hears will laugh over me. And so Abraham is joining into the joy and the celebration. And in response to God's faithfulness and provision to fulfill his promises, to provide exactly as he promised to him, what does he do? He faithfully responds with obedience to God. He obeys God. He names him Isaac in obedience to God. As he said in chapter 17 that you're going to name him Isaac. He circumcised him as he was commanded to do. Like God had commanded these things and Abraham in response to the goodness and faithfulness of God responds with faithful obedience to God. And so after all the tension, giving up his wife a couple different times, famine, disobedience, failure, after all the barrenness from chapter 12 to chapter 21 that Sarah has experienced, of all the drama, of all the failure, of all the delay, here we have the birth of Isaac. Is anything too hard for God? A son is born to a 90-year-old barren woman and her 100-year-old husband at the Word of God. God always keeps His Word. 
He declares it. He demonstrates it over and over in, in Scripture that when He says something, He's going to make sure it's done. And He does it powerfully here with Abraham and Isaac, causing us, hopefully, as the people of God, to rejoice in who He is. But Sarah's joy, at least in this narrative, is somewhat short-lived as we quickly move to more tension in the story, more drama comes up. Verse 8 says that this child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on that day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne Abraham, laughing. So this is, this is weaning would take place at around three years of age, and, and there's, there's more than one people who've experienced like a dramatic three-year-old party. And that's what's going on here. They're, they're having a birthday party in, in essence, and they're celebrating that, that now Isaac is, is kind of, in a sense, he's moved from, from infancy to, to boyhood. He's, he's becoming something a little bit different. And, and this makes uh, Ishmael uh, respond differently than he would have before. Because Ishmael is about 13 years or so, 13, he's a teenager at this point. And up until this point, Ishmael is the heir of Isaac. Ishmael's the only one. He's going to be the heir. He's going to get all of the inheritance. Now Isaac comes along, and it's not really kind of for sure until he gets to boyhood that's like, okay, now he's a legitimate heir of Abraham at this point. And so maybe Ishmael sees this and is a little bit unhappy about it. Maybe he just thinks he's a, a twerp little three-year-old. We, we don't know what's going through Ishmael's head, but Ishmael uh, might see there's a threat to the inheritance now, and he starts laughing at Isaac. So now... In Sarah's eyes, at least, Ishmael is a threat to Isaac's inheritance. Where before, he would have received the inheritance. Now Isaac is there, and Sarah sees Ishmael as a threat to all that would have come or could come to Isaac. Because, at that time, if they were to stay as they were, that, that Ishmael would receive some of the inheritance, and Isaac would receive some of the inheritance. And so Sarah notices this. But notice how impersonal Sarah is with Ishmael. She never uses his name. She sees uh, Ishmael Isaacing Isaac. That's what he's doing. He's laughing at, joking Isaac. That is, this is mocking. Or Galatians 4 says that he's persecuting. Now, there's some malicious intent in some form or fashion here in Isaac's laughter. And we all know this, but Mama Bear doesn't like it when you mess with Baby Bear, right? You're going to mess with the kid like you're going to get some, some fire from mom. And this is what she is responding to. She thinks like he is messing my child. He is, he is bringing some of his inheritance into question. And so she responds with verse 10. She says to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. You, you remember that Hagar was her idea. Like, this was her idea in the beginning. And again, she, she speaks so impersonally of Hagar, almost belittling in her language about Hagar, this slave woman and the son of this slave woman. She's so impersonal. But even though it seems like, and, and Sarah kind of comes off as, as pretty harsh here, it doesn't mean that all of her motivations are bad. She, we don't know. Some of them probably were. But not all of her motivations were bad. One author says this, that Sarah was not motivated by jealousy or pride so much as by a ruthless maternal concern for her son's future. 
You, you buy that, maybe? I, I think that, that could possibly be part of it. That maybe she's just so concerned about Isaac that she goes after Ishmael. Now, I don't think that all of her motivations are that. But culturally, here's what would have happened. That the children born to slave wives, they could inherit along with children of the primary wife. But... They could send them away. The father could release them, giving freedom to both the slave woman and the children, and then they wouldn't be an heir anymore. They would not, no longer have any part of the inheritance. And so that's what Sarah wants. I want him and her. You could give them their freedom. We don't need them anymore. I want Isaac to receive the full inheritance. So her motivation could have been to protect her son's inheritance. But whatever her motivation is, her request to Abraham does not make Abraham happy. Verse 11. And this thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Very displeasing. Now we have all sorts of other uh, kinds of displeasing things happening in the Scripture. Moses, in, in Numbers, is displeased when the people of God complain about not having meat. Very displeased. He's displeased by this. So they complain against God and he talks to God. God is said to be displeased when David takes Bathsheba. And then we know what ensues from there, that he kills her husband and they have a child together. And in some of the ways that this word is used, displeased, you you see death ensues. Like there's, there's a big problem here. But here it says that Abraham is very displeased. That is, it's on account of his son. He loves him. He wants him to be around. He's very displeased that he would have to cast him off along with this woman. And so we don't know, we don't see Abraham's reaction. Maybe he goes and burns down a tent. So displeased, like... Starts hitting camels around the camp or just yells at his wife. Something happens probably, right? There's dysfunction in this family. We don't get to see it, but we can imagine it. That there's some dysfunction going on with Abraham as he's very displeased at this. And we see in verse 12 that God has to speak to Abraham. And God says to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. And so we see God approves of Sarah's request and actually reaffirms Sarah's request. That God tells him, calm down, don't be displeased, calm down, do what she says. Now this is the opposite of what Abraham has needed to do up to this point. He listened to her when he slept with Hagar. That was a bad decision. He should not have listened to her voice. Here, God says, you need to listen to her voice. Now, in listening to her voice, you're listening in obedience to me, because I'm telling you to listen to her voice. But you get to the sense here that Abraham, he's so displeased, there's so much love and tenderness toward his son Ishmael, that he needed this clear command, this clear description from God to carry out this command from God. He needed God to show up. He needed God to speak for him to do this. And he obeys. Verse 14. Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water. And he gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child. And he sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. By faith, Abraham obeys. Now what I think is going on there is that likely... Abraham is, is clinging to the promises of God. He's clinging to God's word. And what has God said? He said, I will make him into a great nation. And so Abraham is as displeased as he is. He trusts God. Ishmael's not going to die. God's going to do something with him. He's even going to bless him. He's going to make him a, a great nation. He's going to flourish because that's what God has said. And so what he does is he loads him up with the basics of survival. Bread and water. And this seems harsh, but we, we don't know. Maybe some more was given to them. 
Or maybe that was all that they could carry. Maybe that's all that they could get away with. And so he, he sends them with enough to get away, but he sends them with a personal touch. Very opposite of Sarah. Get rid of the slave woman. Get rid of the, the son of the slave woman. Here the, the name Hagar is used. And you can see he comes himself and he puts this on her shoulder. There's a personal touch to this. It's his child. It says the word child. And instead of cast off like Sarah says, they sent him away. Very different language. You can almost sense that, that, that we're, we're trying to pull out. We, we need to pull out that, that Abraham is very displeased still. That he's doing this because God has commanded. But he loves his son. He loves Ishmael. But you have to wonder here. What is God doing with this? That you could send a woman and her son away. How in the world could this be a good thing? How in the world could we rejoice here as they are sending them away? How in the world could God be affirming this request from Sarah? And with the departure of Ishmael, here's what's going on. is that There's a clear distinction being made that matters to us today. We see this distinction a little bit more clearly in Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul is picking up this distinction that God made between Isaac and Ishmael. As he says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 28, he says, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, that is Ishmael, persecuted, there's the word, he's laughing, persecuting him, him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. There's, there's a distinction that's being made between there's, there's the spiritual and the fleshly. There's the slave woman and the free woman. There's the, the woman, there's the child of the promise, and there's the child of, of just natural means, natural children. So children of slavery are these natural children, children of the flesh that have no inheritance and actually live in slavery. And Paul is bringing this to a spiritual sense that they live in slavery to, to Satan and sin and death. And he in Galatians is specifically speaking of these people who would try to follow the law and say that the law is the way to get to know God and to be right with God. And he say, no, they're, they're slaves. They are not what you think. And yet there are another kind of children. He rejoices with the Galatians that you are children of the promise. That is, your your supernatural children. You didn't just come about by your own good works. That God did something in you. You're from the Spirit. And you receive the inheritance. And you're truly free. That's what he's saying in Galatians. And, and this is the distinction that we're, we're meant to see in Genesis chapter 21. That there's a slave woman and there's no inheritance with the, the child of the slave woman. And there's the woman who had a child by the Spirit of God. And that's the one that gets the inheritance. And we need to see that distinction. Verse 12 says, For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The promises of God are important. It's important that we see the distinction between the two children. That the promises of God to bless the nations are only going to come through the child of the promise. Not through the child that was of their own making, of their own means, of their own work, of their own desires. It's going to come through the promises of God. This matters immensely later as we know that the promises one of Isaac's great-grandchildren, Jesus. Right? Not Ishmael's great-grandchildren. Now there's a distinction and we need to know the difference. And in His wisdom, God chose Isaac. That is that God wanted to make it clear that the people of God could only exist, could only be the people of God by His power, by His working, and no other reason. 
The people of God could only exist and could only be the people of God by God's power and by God's working and by no other reason. And that's Isaac. The people of God are the people of God because of God's work, because of His promises, because of His mercy. And so he picks Abraham, who is an idol worshiper in another land, married to a barren woman. And so he waits until they're way past the age to have children, and he gives them a child. Ishmael is the opposite of this, complete opposite. That this is a child of their own working. That they weren't past the age of childbearing. That Hagar could have had children. She wasn't barren. This was their own effort, their own means. This was very natural in its working. And God does not bring the promise through that. He wants the people of God to know that they are the people of God, not because they have done something, but because He has done something, and it's by His power alone. And by doing it this way, God gets the, the glory, and His people get the joy. You see this? That the people get to revel in, rejoice in God's provision of His promises. God fulfilling every single one of His promises. His mercy in keeping them until they get the promises. See Sarah here. She is filled with joy. Why? Because she says that God made laughter for me. God is getting glory. She's saying God has done this in me. And yet she's laughing. She's rejoicing. She gets joy from God fulfilling His promise to her. And so God gets the glory. And Sarah gets the joy in the provision and mercy and promise and fulfillment from God. And so God has done what Sarah couldn't do. What Abraham couldn't do. And provides so that He might get glory and His people get the joy. Think of how big this is for us. Abraham couldn't earn the promises that he was given in chapter 12. Abraham could not earn the land. In fact, he flees the land. Tries to get away from faith. He couldn't earn the land. He couldn't get offspring. He's married to a barren woman. He's pretty old himself. He couldn't have done this on his own. He couldn't be a blessing to the nations. We've seen his track record with the nations is not great. He couldn't have done that. He fails at every turn. He's an idol worshiper who wasn't seeking God, who gives up his wife a couple different times, who's past the age of childbearing years, and yet God chose him. He called him. He revealed himself to him. He preserved him, and he blessed him, and he gave him this child. That is that God did in Abraham what Abraham could never have done. And God gets the glory, and Abraham gets the joy. And likewise, we could never earn the promises of God. Couldn't be done. We cannot have life with God. Not in our natural state. We are sinners. We cannot live life with God as we are meant to live. We cannot receive forgiveness of our sins by doing enough good things. We cannot be free from the guilt and the shame and the punishment that we deserve for our sins because of our own working. We can never have eternal life or attain eternal life because we do something. doesn't happen. We are, Ephesians 2, dead in our sins. We are in bondage to our flesh. We are those, Romans says, that no one is seeking after God. Not even one. We are those who are not seeking God. We are those who are following the course of the world. And we are by nature children of wrath. But God supernaturally makes us alive. He gives us birth. He he regenerates us is another way of saying that. He says that you were once not my people and yet I have made you my people. How does that happen? God does it. God is the one who does it. And it's only by God that this happens. God does in us what we could never do. It's His power and it's His working that this happens. And in such a way that God gets the glory and yet we get to receive the joy of all that God has given us in Christ. That it's His power, His working, and we get to enjoy this light yoke. This easy burden from Jesus. Freedom from our guilt. Freedom from our sins. 
freedom from the penalty of our sins. We get to be heirs, receiving the full inheritance that is ours in Christ. We get all of those things, not because we've done something, but because God has been gracious to us to give it to us. God has done in us what we could never have done. Have you experienced this? Do you know this God? Have you experienced God working in a way you never could work so that He gets all the credit and you get so much joy? If you're in Christ, all those who are believers are in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ because God's power and working. And you're part of the people of God because God made you part of the people of God and made you the people of God. And this, once again, is reason for rejoicing. God has done what we can never do. And God should receive the glory, and we ought to rejoice in these realities. So Ishmael and Hagar's departure seems like a lot of tension and a little bit harsh, but it's clearly establishing a a distinction between children of the promise and, and children of natural means, children of the flesh. And if it ends there we would miss even more of God's faithfulness and goodness in Ishmael's banishment. That's right. Ishmael, he gets banished and they're wandering in Beersheba and we still see God's faithfulness and we still see God's goodness. Now, if we we were to stop there, I'm guessing the Israelites would have thought, fine, Ishmael's cut off. We're not from him anyway. We like Isaac better. We're, We're his descendants, so we don't need to hear about Ishmael. But God keeps going because He wants to show us more in His wisdom, in His goodness. So verse 15 says that when the water in the skin was gone... She put the child under one of the bushes. And then she went away and sat down opposite him, a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. Now I said earlier that I think Ishmael is a teenager. So you, you get the, the sense that she's like kind of carrying him along. Like they're leaning on one another as they're going along. And they've run out of provision. They're, they're suffering. She's lost in this wilderness. I don't, didn't find any sort of group of people to be with. And, and they're in some bad circumstances. They're in a pretty serious situation here as they're sent off. And so this, this picture of this departure is, is kind of a rough picture as they travel through the wilderness. And their situation becomes even more dire. It says when they run out of water and they're in the middle of a place that it's desert land. There's not many water holes around this place. And so they, they are in deep trouble here. And yet what do we see? We see that God intervenes. Verse 17. God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Ishmael's actions and his mocking and persecuting of Isaac are part of the reason that they were cast off and pushed out. And yet, whose voice, whose cries does God hear? He hears his cries. He hears Ishmael's. And he hears him in spite of all that he has done. And what do we see from God as He calls out? He calls out Hagar by name. By name, He calls out Hagar. Now you remember this, Pastor Jay preached this before. The first time God spoke to Hagar, He called her out by name then too. And you remember that He said, you're going to have a son and His name is going to be Ishmael, which means God hears. So something is going on here as Hagar and Ishmael are crying out to God. God clearly hears them. He sent them that signal early on that He is with them. And here He hears again. Here Hagar is called by name again. And here Hagar is instructed again. God also repeats a 
promise, saying, your son, he's going to be a great nation. You don't need to fear anymore that you, you feel like you're going to die, but I'm going to do something great here. And so it may seem like when we read Isaac and Ishmael, like Ishmael gets a raw deal. Sent away from the family. What a bad thing to have happened. You're just you and your mom in the wilderness seems pretty awful. But we remember the bigger picture that there's a clear distinction, but we also get to see this. God's faithfulness, His goodness, in the middle of a broken and complicated and dysfunctional situation, God is still at work. He sees them. He's not unaware of them. Oh man, how did Hagar and Ishmael wind up in the desert? He knows where they are. He sees them. He sends someone to speak to them. He knows what's going on. He's not uninvolved in their lives. He's not distant from them. He's so willing. Think of this. He's so willing to answer their calls and their cries for help. He even named the son Ishmael to remind them that he's so willing to answer them when they call. So God hears their desperate cries and God responds. And He responds personally and He responds instructively. Not just like, oh man, that's so sad. No, He gives them instructions. Here's what you can do. Hagar, she's a slave woman and Ishmael is her child. Not a child of the promise. And yet that doesn't hold back God from loving them, meeting them, hearing them, responding to them. How willing our God is to rescue all of those, all of those who call to Him. Any who call to Him. Over and over again, we see this in the Scripture, and and it's true of us too, that any who call on the name of the Lord, any, He hears. He hears them. God hears Hagar and Ishmael's cries. They're not children of the promise. Yet God, He hears them. He reaches down to them. This is a child who was not only a child of the flesh, but Pastor J.D. preached, he's a wild donkey of a man. This is who he's going to be. Not a great guy. Yet God hears. He's so tender. So good. So if you think that maybe I'm a wild donkey of a man, God won't hear me. I'm not a child of any of this stuff. And you can know. You can call out to a God who can hear. But God doesn't just say, I hear you. I see you. Don't worry. Good luck in the wilderness. He responds. Verse 19. He opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. And he lived in the wilderness, and became an expert with the bow. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So God doesn't just hear, He he rescues them. He rescues them, He provides for them in their desperation as they cry out to Him. He opens their eyes so that He would have a well of water. And so a well would mean not just that you have water for now, but you also have sustenance for the future. You have a place where you can go and draw water from them. That is that God didn't abandon or forget about Ishmael and Hagar. That they were cast off, or Abraham's words, sent away, but God was still there. That He was still working, that He heard, that He rescued, and He provides water, not just for temporary survival, but for their continual survival with Ishmael, that Ishmael might be made into what? A great nation, which God had promised. God was faithful to the very end. He was even faithful in getting a wife for Ishmael, that He might have the means to become a great nation. So even as we see Hagar and Ishmael sent out of the camp, sent away, into the desert, we get to see God's faithfulness, God's goodness to every single part of His Word and His promise. It's so true to His character. They're so clearly displayed, even in Hagar, even in Ishmael, that God was faithful. Ishmael didn't deserve it. He didn't do anything to earn it. He's a wild donkey of a man. He cries out to God in his desperation, and God hears him. He's so willing to hear him. 
And he says that he has done this, that he's going to make him to a great nation because he's Abraham's offspring. That God promised something to Abraham and that's being carried through all the way down even to a child who's not a child of the promise. So why does God do these things? Why does God do that? Because this is who God is. Right? He is good. He is faithful. He says it. He will accomplish it. And throughout the Bible and here in Genesis 21, God is putting us all on notice. I'm good. I'm so willing to hear you cry out. I'm faithful. Every part of my promise, I'm going to fulfill every single bit of it. What He promises, He fulfills. What He says, He will do. He is good. He is good. And as the people of God gathered, we, we get to rejoice in that. And, and God gives us a sacred symbol that we might rejoice in that. So here at Sojourn, we, we take the Lord's Supper. And this is a sacred family meal where we are reminded by, by bread and juice of the promises of God fulfilled in Christ and of the promises of God that will be fulfilled in Christ one day. We're reminded of that, that God had promised that He would send a rescuer and that Jesus came, that He is God in flesh, that He lived a life of perfect obedience to His Father. That this is life that we were required to live but never could. We tried. We failed. We worked our fingers down the bone and it didn't work. It didn't work. But we have to be children not of the flesh but children of the promise. And so God has done in Christ that made a way in Christ that we can never make on our own. And He died the death to, to pay for all of our sins. To pay for our way of freedom before us. And so in Christ we, we have now life with God. Through our trust and our faith, we have life with God. A promise of eternity with God. So this is a sacred symbol. If you're a believer, tear off a piece of the bread, dip in the juice, and be reminded, God has been faithful to His promises. God will be faithful to His promises. He's going to come again soon. He's going to bring us back. We're going to have life with Him. If you're not a believer, don't take this meal. By doing so, the Scripture says that you might bring judgment upon yourself. We do not want that to happen. Instead, take Jesus. Trust in Him. Cry out to Him. And see how willing He is to hear your sincere cries for help. If you don't know what it means to follow Christ or crying out to God or believing in Him, come talk to us. We'd love to share with you the hope that we have. But if you're a believer, be reminded of all that God has done and how He's faithful to every single part of His promise. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for being so faithful. Faithful to every part of Your Word. We need a faithful God because we are unfaithful people and that even when we are faithless, You are faithful still. Thank You. May we rejoice in that as the people of God together. May we sing in rejoicing together because you're faithful. May we take this meal as the people of God together because you are faithful. And I pray for those who don't know what that is, who haven't experienced your faithfulness and your grace, that even today, that you would speak to them, that they would hear, they would cry out, and that you would save. God, be honored. Get the glory in all of this. And may we rejoice as you do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.